Hello, everyone, and welcome to the January 29th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, Mnookin, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the dismissal of the State Compensation Insurance Fund's racketeering litigation against a number of target defendants. Here are the basic facts behind this decade-long court battle. In 2001, Alexander Zacks, M.D., formed several businesses in California's Central Valley that focused on providing medical treatment for injured agricultural workers. Dr. Zacks, along with chiropractors David Holmes and Daniel Reyes, formed the Accident Helpline Medical Group at the same time. Zacks also established Milk Creek Surgery Center and Alta Surgery Center. He and a partner also owned Reliable Medical Supply, which provided medical equipment. In 2003, Zacks and his partners also created Valley Interpreting, a translation service for his patients. Dr. Khan and Dr. Zacks engaged in some cross-marketing of their respective services to attorneys representing clients with workers' compensation issues. Bruce Roth, then a senior attorney with the state fund, was assigned to defend state fund against the Zacks entities' WCAB liens. Attorney Roth suspected possible fraud and led an investigation of the Zacks entities. In 2006, Roth had the WCAB consolidate the 1,200-plus liens against the state fund. But by 2009, after losing on several issues before the WCAB, Roth settled the consolidated case without first gaining the approval of his manager or state fund's claim department. When his superiors learned of the settlement, they removed Roth from the case and tried to disavow the settlement on the basis that Roth lacked authority to settle. They forced Roth to resign and then revered the case to other attorneys. The state fund then entered into a superseding settlement agreement with the Zacks entities for substantially the same amount of money negotiated by attorney Roth. The state fund says it did so out of concern that the WCAB might have enforced the original 2009 settlement agreement he negotiated. The newer 2010 settlement agreement released both the state fund and the Zacks entities from all claims they had against each other up until the time of that agreement. But the state fund then filed a federal suit for violation of the Federal Racketeering and Corrupt Organizations Act also known as a RICO case, against these lien claimants and its former employee, attorney Bruce Roth. After three years of litigation and extensive discovery, the Zacks defendants, the Kahn defendants, and attorney Roth filed three separate motions for summary judgment, which were granted in March of 2016. But the state fund appealed the summary judgment to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which just affirmed the trial court in the unpublished case of the State Compensation Insurance Fund versus Kahn, Zacks, and others. 
The appeals court ruled that the state funds claims against these defendants were precluded by the broad liability releases contained in the 2010 settlement agreements. The district court correctly determined that the releases protected all of these defendants by the plain terms of the release agreement. The court also correctly held that there were no grounds for rescinding the 2010 agreement that released the lien claimants. For fraud to justify rescission, it must be extrinsic fraud, but here there was no extrinsic fraud to justify rescission. The state fund was ordered to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney fees to the prevailing defendants. And now our crime report. Last May, congressional staffers started with a very simple question. Exactly how easy is it for the average person to order some of the deadliest drugs over the internet and have them delivered to their home from the other side of the globe? The answer they revealed was shockingly easy. Several state investigators detailed exactly how simple it is to order fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that has overtaken heroin as prescription painkillers to become the biggest killer of Americans online. The staff started quite literally by googling the phrase fentanyl for sale which produced pages and pages of advertisements and made contact with six responsive sellers. The sellers preferred Bitcoin for payment, but they also accepted Western Union transfers, PayPal, and prepaid credit cards. They wanted to ship the packages through the international arm of the U.S. Postal Service rather than a private carrier like FedEx or UPS. The Senate investigators identified 500 transactions in 43 states, adding up to $766 million worth of fentanyl, just from these six sellers. They found people who were purchasing for personal use, including seven who overdosed and died, as well as the people buying to set up their own distribution network in America. Now that shipments from China have come under suspicion, the sellers told the investigators that they preferred to ship through Europe. The underlying message of the report was that the U.S. Postal Service should do more to crack down on these illicit shipments. Right now, private carriers are required to collect advanced electronic data, a barcode with information about the sender, the recipient, and what's in the package. But the Postal Service and its foreign counterparts do not. That's precisely why sellers prefer the U.S. Postal Service over FedEx or UPS. 46-year-old Marcus Buckley, a former National Football League player, accused of participating in a $1.5 million scheme to defraud Gallagher Bassett Services, has been sentenced to 24 months in federal prison. The federal judge also ordered Buckley to pay more than $1.58 million in restitution. Buckley played professional football from 1993 to 2000 with the New York Giants. In 2006, Buckley filed a workers' compensation claim against the Giants, for cumulative stress injuries sustained while playing football, part of that time in California. 
Buckley settled his case with the Giants in 2010 for $300,000. But after his claim was settled, Buckley prepared and filed numerous requests for additional reimbursement under his claim from medical providers for medical services he said they provided. And he also prepared false credit collection notices from collection agencies seeking payment from Buckley from various medical providers for past due medical bills. These bills were sent to his co-defendant, Kimberly Jones, who was a claims adjuster with Gallagher Bassett Services at its Sacramento office, who managed workers' compensation claims in California. Adjuster Jones was aware that Buckley was not entitled to additional reimbursement under his disability claim and that the documentation and requests he submitted were false. But Jones nevertheless caused Gallagher Bassett to issue checks payable to Buckley, and he ultimately received more than $1.58 million to which he was not entitled. Jones pleaded guilty to wire fraud in October 2015, and she will be sentenced this February. A nine-year veteran of the Los Angeles Police Department, whose last assignment was with the Valley Traffic Division, was arrested on suspicion of workers' compensation fraud. 48-year-old Jason Gordon was arrested on a felony arrest warrant related to workers' compensation fraud and attempted perjury. The LAPD's Special Operations Division, Workers' Compensation Fraud Unit, conducted an investigation that began when Gordon filed a medical claim in 2015. Authorities said Gordon performed physical work-out activities inconsistent with his claimed injury while on temporary total disability status. Gordon was booked and released after posting $40,000 bail. And Gordon is the second LAPD employee to be arrested on suspicion of committing workers' comp fraud in the last few weeks. Gerald Pulley, who was last assigned to the LAPD's Records and Identification Division, was arrested on January 11 on suspicion of exaggerating the extent of his injuries while receiving benefits. And in regulatory news, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the Federal Trade Commission posted joint warning letters to the marketers and distributors of 12 opioid cessation products. Officials say the named companies are illegally marketing unapproved products with claims about their ability to help in the treatment of opioid addiction and withdrawal. All of the companies use online platforms to make illegal and unproven claims about their product's ability to cure, treat, or prevent a disease. The FDA and the FTC have requested responses from each of the companies within 15 working days in order to inform each agency of the specific actions taken to address each agency's concerns. The warning letter also states that failure to correct violations may result in law enforcement actions such as seizure or injunction. Also, the FTC issued a fact sheet to help consumers get real help for opioid addiction or withdrawal while avoiding products that promise but do not deliver help. The fact sheet has tips that consumers and health practitioners alike can share with those considering help for opioid addiction or withdrawal.
The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration said it had changed a regulation to allow more healthcare professionals in rural areas to prescribe a medication used to treat opioid addiction. The latest change is part of a 2016 law that added categories of practitioners who may prescribe the narcotic drug bruprenorphine for maintenance or detoxification treatment. Bruprenorphine is an opioid used to treat opioid addiction, acute pain, and chronic pain. It can be used under the tongue, by injection, as a skin patch, or as an implant. When used for opioid addiction, it is recommended that a health care provider observe the person while they take the medication. For longer-term treatment of addiction, a combination formulation of bruprenorphine naloxone is usually recommended. Maximum pain relief is generally within an hour, with effects lasting up to 24 hours. Bruprenorphine was approved for medical use in the United States in 1981. In 2012, 9.3 million prescriptions for the medication were written in the United States, but bruprenorphine may also be used recreationally, by injection, or in the nose for the high it produces, and some use it as a substitute for heroin. In the United States, it is a Schedule III controlled substance. A 2017 study published by the National Rural Health Association found that 53% of rural counties had no physician able to prescribe medication to those addicted to opioids. About 90% of physicians allowed to prescribe such medication live in urban counties, and 30 million people live in areas where treatment is therefore unavailable. Now, under the new regulations, about 5,000 mid-level practitioners can prescribe the medication, and nearly 43,000 practitioners may qualify to do so in the future. A 2000 study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention showed that rural America has more drug overdose deaths than urban areas. And in medical news, according to a new Senate report, one of the largest entitlement programs in the country is incentivizing prescription drug trafficking and exacerbating the national opioid epidemic. The report details how Medicaid policies governing prescription drug prices expanded at the state level through the Affordable Care Act in 2014 and perversely incentivize opioid abuse and illicit sales, as well as large-scale trafficking operations involving both criminal drug lords and respected doctors. The report claims financial incentives provided through Medicaid are negatively contributing to the ongoing addiction crisis. This contradicts the common media narrative that Medicaid expansion under the ACA is essential to combating the epidemic because of its funding for addiction treatment programs. The report notes that roughly 70 million people are covered under Medicaid, more than one-fifth of the U.S. population, which has created a series of incentives for potential abuse of opioids, which are rooted in federal law itself. Medicaid patients usually do not pay for covered medical expenses and that federal law mandates additional costs such as copayments be kept small for lower-income groups. 
The incentives were made worse through an Obama administration rule mandating that states could charge no more than $4 to Medicaid patients for certain groups of prescription drugs, including opioid painkillers. In some states, patients on Medicaid pay as little as $1 copayment for up to 240 prescription pills that carry a street value of roughly $4,000. The authors of the report argue that Medicaid is the federal program most prone to abuse and the primary government funding source for the epidemic. And in other industry news, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Health and Human Services Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced a partnership to share data, data analytic tools, and best practices for identifying and preventing fraud, waste, and abuse. This newest partnership enhances ongoing efforts between the country's two largest healthcare payment organizations to help America's veterans by leveraging the gains made by CMS. The VA-HHS Alliance represents the latest example of the VA's commitment to find partners to assist with identifying new and innovative ways to seek out fraud, waste, and abuse and to ensure every tax dollar given to VA supports veterans by taking another step toward achieving President Trump's 10-point plan to reform the Veterans Administration. CMS continues to focus on reducing and eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in Medicare, and in 2010, it established the Center for Program Integrity to help with this work. CMS estimates that its program integrity activities saved Medicare operations $17 billion in fiscal 2015. The VA plans to capitalize on the advancements in analytics CMS has made by concentrating on its use of advanced technology, statistics, and data analytics to improve fraud detection and prevention efforts. Property Casualty 360 just published its 10 workers' compensation trends to watch in 2018. It says that healthcare consolidation, new drug treatment guidelines, and judicial challenges are a few of the issues impacting workers' compensation specialists this coming year. 34 of the 50 state governors are currently Republicans. This, combined with the fact that insurance rates are down in most of the U.S., means that we have not seen a significant push for workers' comp reforms in the last few years. But, in California, it is Governor Brown's last year in office. Thus, they expect yet another push by the California legislature to undermine prior workers' compensation reforms. Universal health care will likely be an issue in the 2018 governor's race, and the outcome of this election could have a significant impact on workers' compensation in 2019. Concerns about the new governor were also the topic of the presentation this month at the Employers' Fraud Task Force meeting. Jerry Azevedo from the Workers' Comp Action Network was the speaker, and he expressed similar concerns. And California seems to be ahead of the trend on drug formularies. 
In 2018, California, New York, and Arkansas will all be implementing new treatment guidelines or drug formularies. Montana is also implementing a drug formulary, but the timeline for this is not set yet. Georgia, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Louisiana all considered either treatment guidelines or drug formularies in 2017, and they will revisit this issue again in 2018. And California is also ahead of the trend to challenge the constitutionality of aspects of workers' compensation law. Last year, Pennsylvania joined the list of states to have a portion of their workers' comp statutes found to be unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court. There is a case on appeal in Kansas right now challenging the constitutionality of a portion of their statute as well. It is worth noting that the basis for these constitutional challenges exists in many other states. Last year, a judge in Alabama declared the state's entire workers' compensation statute unconstitutional. This was appealed, and the case settled on appeal, so that decision ultimately was rendered moot. However, the issues raised in that court case regarding benefit adequacy are something we could all see again anywhere. Multiple brokers have indicated that the workers' compensation rate outlook for 2018 is relatively flat. But with workers' compensation being such a long-tail business, premiums collected today must cover losses 30 years into the future. As losses continue to climb, it is inevitable that insurance rates will need to increase in the future to offset those losses. The Memet Group has been ranked the top workers' compensation company in the U.S. by Accord, which is the Association for Cooperative Operations, Research, and Development, the global standard-setting body for the insurance industry. The Memet Group includes Memet Indemnity Company, Memet Casualty Company, and parent company Maine Employers Mutual Insurance Company a workers' compensation, especially insurer, that opened for business in January 1993. In a first-of-its-kind study of the $48 billion U.S. workers' compensation insurance market, Maine-based Memic came out on top based on strong financial performance, as well as measurable, superior capabilities in customer experience, employee satisfaction, and brand reputation. The workers' compensation study examined the top 50 workers' compensation writers in the U.S. These top 50 account for 85% of the U.S. workers' compensation premiums, and the insurers generate annual premiums ranging from $200 million to $4 billion. The results showed that top-performing workers' compensation carriers simultaneously pursued four key strategies, operational efficiency, customer experience, product differentiation, and innovation. More results of the workers' compensation study, including additional analysis, will be released in a paper published later this year. With offices across the eastern seaboard, the Memet Group holds licenses to write workers' compensation across the country and is rated A, or excellent, by AM&M Best. 
Memic insures more than 20,000 employers and their estimated 300,000 employees and holds more than $1.3 billion in assets. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And now we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Folst, an attorney with Floyd Skarin, Manukian, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.